1812, when the Reverend Henry Martin's journals arrived from the, what was then the dark and distant land of India to Cambridge, England, the Reverend Charles Simeon, Mrs. Thomason, and the Reverend John Sargent gathered in Charles Simeon's study. They gathered there because it was Charles Simeon who had brought Henry Martin to faith when he was an undergraduate at, at Cambridge University there in England and had discipled him and had commissioned him off as a missionary to that dark and distant land of India in those days. Now, I need to tell you, as they began to read Henry Martin's journals, they found themselves quietly weeping inside. They were shocked at what they discovered there. They had always known Henry Martin to be a person who seemed so lighthearted, so carefree, so much in touch with God and with a sense of God's presence in his life. He seemed to always have time for people, seemed to always have a special uh, uh, kindness and gentleness towards children, towards animals of all kinds, always seemed to have time to stop and kneel and look at a wildflower growing up from the ground. He just was a St. Francis type person, if you will. So you can understand their surprise when the journals arrived back to Cambridge after his untimely death and they began to read through those journals and they discovered the depth of depression, at times despondency and discouragement through which he often had to fight through in order to have a sense of God's presence. And they wept because they were not aware of it. And they could have been so much more helpful for him had they known that. We never know what's in a person. We never know the things they struggle with. The rabbis used to say when we come into the synagogue we all hang our coats and hats in a rack in the back of the church, the synagogue, and, and when the service is over, we all make sure we get our own, lest we get someone else's sorrows who are greater than ours. We never know what's in a person. We have no journals of Jesus by which we can know the kinds of things with which he struggled there are those few glimpses that we get in the Gospels where Jesus says something such as, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, remove me from this hour? No, it, it was for this hour that I have come. Father, glorify yourself in me. The writer to Hebrews says that Jesus in his human condition cried out to God with sighs and cries and loud groans and he was heard for his faithfulness. And then later uh, the scriptures say that he was in every way tempted 
as we are. Every way tempted as we are, yet did not sin. It's important for us to remember that Jesus was fully human, fully man. And from out of his humanity, we can expect and do hear a voice that sounds a lot like our voices, confused at the things that happen all around us, heavy-hearted from the things that uh, shake us in the very core of our being. We should expect to hear a voice a lot like ours, tempted in every way fully man. But it's also true to say that we need to remember that he was fully divine. And out of his divinity we hear voice that if on the lips of a human being would be blasphemous. Such as, I am the light of the world. If a man walks with me he will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. I am the bread of heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am the resurrection and I am life. If someone believes in me and yet dies, he will live. For I am resurrection and the life. If one believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Or the one that we heard today in the gospel reading. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I tell you that I go to prepare a place for you? And where I am, you will be also. Lord, we do not know, don't know where you're going. How will we know the way? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I call them by name and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And so we hear this dual voice, if you will, coming from our Lord. On one moment, a voice that sounds like ours, and, and on another moment, a voice that's so different, it can only be divine. Such as when he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. I've struggled as a pastor over the years to understand just who those people are that if Jesus is lifted up on the cross he will draw to himself and I've come up with four categories of people that if Jesus is lifted up he will draw to himself the first category is those who seek no one who has gone midway through life can can fail to come to a place to see the the absolute uh, emptiness of a life lived totally in this world. How quickly things ebb and flow. 
how quickly those things that we grab hold of and see as the thing that will make us happy, happy end up empty. How quickly someone falls in love with someone and they think they cannot live without them and they get the very one they love and within a few years the magic's gone. Someone thinks if I just get this car then I'll, then I'll be happy. Wait till I graduate from school. And you graduate from school and then wait till I get that job. And then you get the job and you say, well, wait till I'm married. And, and then, well, wait till I have children. Well, wait till the children are gone. <laughs> oh, when I'm retired. And then, then you're looking back and you say, oh, if I only had that youth now. No, Jesus draws those who seek. Seek and you shall find. Knock and will be opened. Ask and you will receive. He also draws those who suffer. Sometimes, you know, it's not always the preacher or the theologian who knows most powerfully the meaning of the cross of Christ. Sometimes it is the simple layperson who has clung to the cross in the midst of her physical pain, in the midst of emotional distress and upheaval, who has clung to the cross of Christ that knows better its meaning. Sometimes we who preach and we theologians remind me of, of schoolboys who can tell you all the parts, the anatomy of a frog but can't tell you where to find one on a hot summer's day. No, sometimes it's the layperson who's clung to the cross of Christ in the midst of their suffering, who knows what its meaning is. Some years ago, Keith Miller, who was a very active layperson back in the 70s, went off to seminary and then discovered he wasn't called to be a priest and then began a, a ministry which affected many Episcopalians all over this country in coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Keith Miller was keen on starting small groups by which people could be discipled one with another. And one of the things he often asked people when they gathered in these small groups is, when did God become more than a name for you? And he said one day in this new small group they were starting, this woman began to tell her story of how God became more than a name for her. She said, you know, I was, I was orphaned at a very young age and put into an orphanage, and often people would come to the orphanage and kind of uh, scope us out. And so all, all, the, all we little kids would gather around, and, and he, she said, I always put myself forward in such a way that now I realized was very off-putting but I was just trying to get their attention so that someone would adopt me. And I guess I did this in such a way that nobody seemed to want to till finally one day, after many disappointments, it happened. A family took me home. I was so happy. It was a big house. I can still see it very clearly in my mind. I remember skipping off to school coming back and, and always buzzing around my ad adopted parents. 
But after about a month of this, I came home from school one day, skipping and so happy to have a home. And when I walked into the front door there, my suitcases were packed up. I was going back to the orphanage. They just couldn't handle me. You know, she said, that happened seven times before I got to the age of 17. Well, by that moment, Keith said everyone was just kind of tearing up. And she said, oh, oh, please, don't, don't cry, don't, don't weep, don't feel badly for me. All of that had to happen because it drew me to the only one who could truly feel that deep emptiness within me. It was through that that I learned the meaning of the cross of Jesus and knelt there that he could heal me so I wouldn't be throwing myself at people for the rest of my life. I found in him the approval I could not find any place else. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself, all who seek and all who suffer. And of course, all who sin. There are days, aren't there, when, when the weight of our sin just weighs heavily upon us. We can, we can push it aside from time to time. But then something happens that just reveals just what's in us. And it's like that time when you're carrying just too many suitcases in the airport and you have to catch a plane. And it begins to ache and the weight of carrying the luggage and yet you've you got to make it to the, to the gate in time. You can't put it down, you've got to hold it. And suddenly when you can just finally put it down, it just feels a great sense of relief. There's, there's people who live with, with a profound sense of, of sin and guilt in this world. You know, guilt has been said that it is the peg upon which the meaning of humankind hangs. And it is the peg upon which humankind hangs themselves. What did Gertrude Stein mean when she said that guilt is the peg upon which the meaning of man hangs and the, ma and the peg upon which mankind hangs himself? Well, when she said it is the peg upon which the meaning of humankind hangs, what she means is if we can have a culture, if you can have a civilization, if you can have a country, if you can have a city, if you can have a community, if you can have a neighborhood, if you can have a family, if you can have an individual who can do the most destructive thing and feel no guilt, what hope is there for that civilization, for that nation, for that town, for that community, for that neighborhood, for that family, for that individual? if they never feel any guilt. Our very civilization hangs upon our capacity to experience guilt. But therein lies the rub. For once we experience the guilt, 
the sense in which we've done that which is wrong, we feel the weight of it, the burden of it, we're then hung on the very peg upon which our meaning hangs. Some of you have heard me tell the story of Claude Etherly as an illustration of this. Claude Etherly was a, was a bombardier during World War II, or at least he says he was. He says it was his job to push the button that would have the bombs fall. He said one, one day his squadron got a top secret assignment. It was all hush-hush. He said that he didn't know what the full assignment was when the bomber took off that morning. He said all he had was the coordinates in view of when he was to push the button to have the bombs fall. He says it wasn't until the bomber, the B-29, came over Hiroshima that the coordinates came into view and he pushed the button and the big one fell. Said when the plane turned to go back to the base, he looked out of the little side compartment window and he saw the mushroom-shaped cloud come up. He saw it in a way that you and I will never see it. I've seen it on my television screen. I, I suppose even you young people there being confirmed, you've seen that mushroom-shaped cloud, perhaps on a theater screen or a television screen. But there's none of us that have ever seen it the way he saw it. He got back to the base and the next day began to read about all the devastation that had happened. And he said he was filled with a sense of tremendous guilt. He said, I didn't know what to do with it. I went to my commander, poured out my soul to him, and he said, look, young soldier, you are just following orders. Any guilt you have is not yours. I suggest you get on with your life. But it didn't go away. It just got worse the more he read about the devastation. So he went to the commander of the base and poured out his soul to him. And the commander said, look, young airman, your orders came down from the highest human authority on earth, the President of the United States. The guilt's not yours. Get on with your life. But it didn't go away military paid for him to go to one therapist after another, all trying to deal with his guilt. He was finally discharged in and out of mental institutions. He started going into stores and stealing things off the shelf that he could easily afford. When asked why, he said, I wanted to stand before a judge who would tell me I was guilty. Guilt, the peg upon which the meaning of humankind hangs, and the peg upon which humankind hangs himself. Well, the, the problem is it's far deeper than that because the United States Air Force has no record of ever having been a bombardier on a B-29. No, he was a pilot during World War II. He flew the reconnaissance plane. 
He flew the reconnaissance plane that morning and signaled back from, from the air above Hiroshima. The weather's fine, everything's clear, send the bomber. You see, he knew what the mission was. He just couldn't face that he knew what the mission was, couldn't write himself out of the story, but couldn't bear the weight of the story the way it was. That's the problem with guilt. Where do we go with it once we have it? Ah, you know. Because if Jesus has been lifted up upon the cross and you've looked upon it and been drawn by it, you know where to go with your guilt. And all those people out in the neighborhoods where you live and in the workplaces you live that are hung on the guilt of their own lives upon which their meaning hangs, they may not know. But Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself, all who seek, all who suffer, all who sin. Oh, do I have time? I don't know, but I'm going to go there anyway. There's another group of people, and some of them may be here. It's those who, who feel the weight of shame. You know, there's a difference between sin and guilt and shame. Sometimes there's shame that we deserve, but often there's shame that we do not. Take the young boy or girl that grows up in an alcoholic home. She comes home from school and mom's been drinking again. And she thinks to herself, if I could only behave better, perhaps this wouldn't happen. You see, guilt is that sense in which I've done something wrong and therefore I feel guilty. But shame is the sense in which bad things happen in my family because I'm bad, and if I could only be better, they wouldn't happen. If I could only behave well enough, Dad wouldn't come home and drink too much and throw things around the room and shame me in front of my friends. Shame has a way of, of eating deep within our sense of worth. And we try to hide it because, why, we don't want other people to know we're so bad that we have these kinds of things. Where does one go with this stuff? Where can one go to be healed of this? I don't know if you've heard me tell the story uh, that Fred Craddock tells. Fred was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. He was a professor of homiletics. And, and one uh, summer, he and his wife went up to Gatlinburg, Tennessee to get away from all the pressures in his life. You know, preachers, when they're on vacation, they, like to, they don't always like to be around people. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> so when they walked into this fancy restaurant... There was a distinguished elderly Major D there who greeted them 
And, and Dr. Craddock said, you know, we'd like a small little nook, a little booth that we could have some time to ourselves. And, and the maitre d' said, oh, I've got just a place for you, and took them over to a little nook and said, will this do? And Dr. Craddock said, that's wonderful. And he and his wife sat down, and lo and behold, then the maitre d' sat down in the booth right beside them. And the man said, oh, what is it that you do? And, and Dr. Craddock said, I didn't want to tell him I was a preacher. He might be there all night. So I said, I was a professor of homiletics. And the man said, homiletics, that's preaching, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, he's stuck now. And then the man said, hey, do I have a story for you? He says, I grew up in a, in a small home, in a small village in Tennessee, turn of the century. Never knew my daddy. I was born illegitimately. And the, in those days, if you lived in a small town in Tennessee and born illegitimately, I mean the level of shame you can't imagine. Why, sometimes my mom and I would be walking down the sidewalk and, and somebody would see us coming down the same sidewalk and they'd cross over the street and walk over on the other side of the sidewalk unless they have to deal with us. My mama, she believed in God, but, but she didn't feel like she could go to any church. When I got to the age of about 10 or 11 or so, I had a great hunger for God. So I got started going to the, to the church, the only church in our little town. I sat in the back. And I'd get out before the preacher had finished, lest I have to talk to somebody. One day, though, we had a new preacher come, and, and he preached in such a way that I could understand, and I really liked what he had to say. And so sometimes I'd just sit back there, and one day I just sat back there too long because the last hymn was being sung, and I still hadn't made my escape. And it suddenly dawned on me, and I started to go out, and oh, Lord, there he was standing in front of the back door. I tried to go around on one side, and he moved. I tried to go on the other side, and there he had me stuck. And then his big hand went down on my shoulder. And he said to me, Young man, who's your father? Oh, my. I didn't know what to say. I was speechless. So I just stood there. Then he said again, young man, I, I ask you who your daddy was. I could feel the the blood running up to my face. I must have turned every color of red. I was speechless. It was like I was in a time warp. And then I felt his big hand gripping my shoulder harder, and he said, young man, I said, who is your daddy? Didn't know what to say again. And he said, oh, boy, I know who your father is. You bear a striking resemblance to him. Why, your father is the great God and Father Almighty who through his son Jesus Christ has made you his child. And I'm here to tell you that day the layers of shame were washed off of me forever. Well, Dr. Craddock, knowing a good story when he heard one, said, sir, what did you say your name was? I know you told us when we came in. said, my name? Why, I'm Ben Hooper. I was the first governor of Tennessee 
who was born illegitimately. But that day in that church, the shame of my life was washed away. And I became a new person in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It is through me that you come before the Father. And there, as we see the cross of Christ lifted up, all who seek, all who sin, all who suffer, and all who know shame can find a place to live. I have gone to prepare a place for you, not just in that which is to come, but even now in this world where you can live free, free from sin and guilt and shame and have meaning for your suffering and the source of your seeking is found in him. Let us pray. Lord, I do thank you for uh, this wonderful group of people. And I pray, Lord, that if there are some here who are seeking uh, the meaning of life, that you might draw them to your cross where they might come to know the hope of salvation. I pray that there, if there are some who are suffering here, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that they might find in your suffering upon the cross and your resurrection hope for their lives in the midst of it. If there are some who have come in here with the weight of sin and guilt upon them, that they might let that guilt down at the foot of your cross and be ushered into the presence of the Father where they may know the wonder of his love. And I pray that if there are some here who have known the pang of shame, that they might find in the one shamed on the cross one who can be the healing for the shame they deserve and the shame they do not, that they might be free, for you have promised whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Grant us, Lord, this freedom, this forgiveness, and this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.